When I played football in high school, about once a month, we would have a moment when we would actually take an intimidating amount of weight and place it on the bench press, and each of us would see how much we could lift. Now, when we would do this, we often would make sure that we had the best spotter. Now, a spotter was a person who was supposed to make sure the weight didn't drop on your head and kill you, uh, but if you had a good spotter on that day, the spotter was also somebody who would give you a little bit of extra help so that your maximum weight that you lifted was higher than probably it normally would be. Well, I, I did that a number of times, and uh, I remember a couple of times where I decided to go to the gym later and tried to lift that same amount of intimidating weight by myself and almost died. I underestimated how much help I had received from the outside, from that spotter who had lifted the weight. In fact, sometimes it almost felt like they had lifted it more than I had. Well, I think that when we think about the nature of the reality that we live in, the nature of the reality that we find Peter introducing us to this morning, what we find is there is actually a grand cosmic meta-narrative that we are all part of in which there is much more going on that is influencing our day-to-day lives than we realize. And we need to be uh, completely vigilant constantly of the reality that as we are looking at our reality, we need the help of God. Now here's the problem. I think that sometimes we begin to imagine that God is like us. And that God needs a spot. That God needs our help more than we understand that we are constantly in need of His care. Uh, you, you see this all the time in your lives. Life gets intimidating and you begin to question whether or, not God, whether or not God has this. Just think about it. Just this last week I was thinking of a number of situations that could cause me or someone else to begin to question whether or not God was really in control, good, or cared. I uh, had one member uh, of our church who called and said that they had been in a motorcycle accident where they had to have multiple surgeries. A great opportunity to start to question whether or not God cared for them. Uh, my brother called and told me that my sister-in-law might have cancer. Uh, she does not, praise God. But uh, an opportunity, yet again, to question what is it that God is doing in this moment. Uh, I talked to another guy who might actually be walking away from the faith because his life has been harder than he thought it would be as a Christian. All of these situations begin to make us to ask, where is God in all of this and what is He doing? And when life gets intimidating, you can start to look away from the mighty arm of God who promises that uh, He will always bring about those things which He has for us. And He promises that He will always bring His sojourners, exiles, and sheep into the promised land with that mighty arm. He, He tells us that He never needs a spot, and yet in those moments we begin to ask whether or not God has this. Well, this morning we're back in our hopeful exile series, which is really coming to an end, in 1 Peter 5, 6-11. And we find that Peter is speaking uh, again to a, a mostly non-Jewish group of Christians who have been suffering in the Roman province of Asia Minor. That's where modern-day Turkey is. And they've faced a, a number of various persecutions with differing degrees of suffering, ranging from alienation at the family get-together to the occasional sporadic political persecution. So they're, they're facing a, a wide array of sufferings. And, and you'll remember that last week we saw that God has entrusted the leadership of the flock of God, His children, to human shepherds as we await for the return of the chief shepherd of our souls, Jesus Christ. And praise God that the good shepherd is our chief shepherd. Now you'll notice that he tells us this week in verse 5 that younger Christians need to submit to elders. 
And, and then he'll go on to say that all Christians need to be humble and to resist the devil before pointing us again to that future glory that awaits us. He's continuously pushed us towards the future that awaits, and he does that again this morning. So if you're taking notes, here's our big idea, a great thing to write down. It's this. It's that we need to seek Christ to empower us against the devil who seeks to devour us. In other words, seek Christ to empower you against the devil who seeks to devour you. That's our main point. Let me think about that this morning. But before we do that, why don't we invite God to help us, to help our hearts. Let's pray to God together. Father, this morning we come before you and we are freshly aware, as we're going to see in your word yet again, uh, Father, that there are spiritual forces that are against us. And some of those forces are seeking right now to prevent us from hearing from your life-giving word. And so, God, we pray this morning that you would help us by the power of your Spirit to hear from you, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear the glories and majesties of your Son, Jesus Christ. Unfold those to us today. Give us new life, we pray. And it's in the great name of your Son that we do pray. Amen. Well, this morning, the first thing that we see is in verse 5, the first part of verse 5. It's this, younger Christians need to submit to human shepherds. Younger Christians need to submit to human shepherds. Uh, look again uh, with me at 1 Peter 5, at that first part of the verse, at what he says. He, he says this. He says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Now, that, that likewise that you'll take note of in verse 5 is actually connecting Peter's command for human pa- pastors or shepherds to treat God's flock well in verses 1 to 4. We talked about that last week. He's connecting that with the command to young Christians to submit to pastors here in verse 5. See, Peter's, I believe, again, flexing those pastoral muscles, uh, where he is anticipating how young Christians might be tempted to take advantage of Peter's command to pastors. In other words, we know that pastors are supposed to be gentle and willing and helpful, and so uh, we're just going to kind of apply that to you without thinking about what God has said to us. And so, Peter quickly turns and tells them, you need to submit to your pastors. Now, don't miss this. Peter says young Christians need mature shepherds to point them to the chief shepherd of their souls when suffering hits. They they need that. Now, I love the energy and excitement of young Christians. Don't you love the the energy and excitement of young Christians? Uh, Especially here, uh, we've got so many younger Christians who are excited about the gospel. Uh, I think that's good for us as a congregation. I think it's good to have young Christians who have an energy and enthusiasm for the gospel. They don't know what direction they're going in, but they're going fast and they're going hard. And we need that. But as we think about the nature of what Peter has to say here, he's reminding us that even in our strengths, sometimes our strengths can be our weaknesses and we just need to be self-aware. So here, he's saying, I believe that we need to be careful about what could be the opposite end of having energy and enthusiasm. I think it's the same thing that Paul highlights, that weakness tendency that young people have in Titus 2, where after a lengthy list of expectations of older Christian men and how they should live, in verse uh, verse 7 of Titus 2, he says this, Likewise, urge younger men to be self-controlled, period. Long list, this is what older Christians do, short list, Be self-controlled, younger Christians. See, I think one of the major battlefields for Christian maturity is self-control. Self-control in every area. It is a lifelong battle that we have self-control in all the things that we do to glorify God. 
That includes faithfully submitting yourself to faithful shepherds. Self-control, it includes faithfully submitting yourself to faithful shepherds. Now catch this. Christian maturity is just as much caught as taught. Right? Like we need not only to know how we are to follow Jesus, but we need to have examples and models that we can watch living it out in real time in our own context. You cannot microwave maturity. Right? You can't do that. It's not quick. It's not easy. It's not fast. Maturity takes time plus intentionality and discipleship in the context of a local church according to the New Testament. That's what you need. You need time. You need intentional discipleship. And it needs to be in the context of the community of the local church. That is the ground and the soil in which mature Christians grow up and bear fruit. So your life will be shaped by the leaders that you follow. Fortunately, you won't physically look like them, but hopefully spiritually, more and more, you will begin to look like the leaders that you follow. You know, it's interesting to me uh, the way that this works out. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but um, have you ever noticed how your kids just tend to start like doing the stuff you do and valuing the things that you value in a way that you didn't even like intentionally teach them? So for us, uh, one of my, my great proud moments, I could share with you many not proud moments, is the fact that Jackson Lee, my seven-year-old, uh, has actually worn out his Saints jersey that we bought him in less than a year. Now why is that? It's because if it is clean, and by clean I don't mean that it has been washed recently, but that it doesn't stink so bad that people don't make comments, he's going to wear that jersey every day. And what jersey is that? Well, it's his Saints number 8 jersey because it's the number of the best quarterback on the planet, Drew Brees. He knows that. Now, if I ever had to sit him down and explain that to him, that we are going to support and we're going to root for the Saints, not the Cardinals or anybody else, unless the Saints aren't playing? No, I didn't have to do that. Like, he, he got that because he saw that dad watches the Saints if dad can watch the Saints. If he's not preaching when the Saints are playing, he's watching the Saints. That's just what he does. And what does Jack do? Jack does what dad does. He celebrates the Saints. That is not a conversation or a teaching that we had. I had to do that with Benjamin. That was another kind of discipleship, corrective. But, but with others, like, he just picked it up. And I think that's the same thing that happens within the context of a local church as you have faithful shepherds who are over the church, you're going to start to notice that the sheep start to look like and smell like the shepherds. Spiritually. You need happy, willing, selfless, brazen shepherds who love God's sheep and don't flinch when suffering hits. Now, your elders here at Trinity aim at living and believing in such a way that you can emulate us. That's what we long to do. Of course, one of the most attri- important attributes of a good under-shepherd, just to be clear, involves modeling confession of sins. We're not Jesus. We're not the great chief shepherd. And constantly pointing you and other sheep towards the ultimate ground of our confident hope. It's not us. It is the chief shepherd of your souls, Jesus Christ. You need shepherds who can tell you when they've messed up. Uh, they need to, you need to see the kinks in their armor and have them be able to explain like where God has brought them from and where He's taking them to. And that is all about Jesus Christ. Of course, this requires a few clarifications. Uh, I think that in this moment in history, 
uh, this kind of, of understanding of leadership requires a few clarifications. Uh, given the pervasive abuse that has recently been exposed in our culture, I mean, just think about it. You probably already are thinking about failures in leadership that are causing you to sort of push back against any kind of leadership being good. Uh, from Hollywood to doctors to the Catholic Church, and more recently, uh, a number of Southern Baptist churches have had articles written about them. And in all of this, you begin to question whether or not you can trust leadership at all. So let me make a few quick, important qualifications about the call for younger Christians to follow leadership. Just, just to be clear, uh, one is this. Peter's not writing a blank check for leaders to demand whatever they want and expect absolute, unquestioned obedience. That's not what this is saying. Good leaders, I believe, invite sincere questions. There's a learning that goes on even in the dialogue. And second, he's not encouraging young Christians to obey under-shepherds who tell them to disobey the chief shepherd of their souls, Jesus, by telling them to disobey the Bible. That, that's not what we're talking about. So if you ever feel that this has happened to you at Trinity, God forbid, please tell another elders. That's why we have many elders, is to protect you. So that if one, like, you know, hopefully never happens, but does something that makes you uncomfortable, you can go to other elders and, and you can seek accountability. And third, this verse also doesn't mean that the elders exercise an absolute kind of rule in such a way that they are not ultimately accountable to other elders in the church and the church as a whole. You know, we will be held accountable before God, before other elders, and before you for the way that we shepherd you. So the existence of bad shepherds, it doesn't mean that you don't need shepherds or, or that you get a pass on submitting to faithful shepherds. Trust that God uses frail human, humanity to lead frail humanity in ways that are full of the glory of God. Because catch this. From the end of verse 5-7, to seven, Peter says, how you see others, the way that you treat others in community says something about how you see God. Your relationships with others, it says something about how you see God. Uh, you see that in the second part of verse 5 and verse 7. So here in our second point, you see, that we are to humble, you are to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Or more appropriately, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. So here what Peter's doing is, he's actually broadening his attention to the congregation as a whole. From younger Christians to the whole congregation. And as he's doing this, it, it's interesting. You'll notice that he's, he's kind of peeling back the veil of their of their reality to reveal and draw attention to the spiritual world with the cosmic forces that are at war behind the scenes of their everyday experiences. So he's been talking all about these sort of horizontal uh, experiences of suffering in so many different ways and what they ought to do. And here he says, okay, let me just pull back the, the, the veil and show you what's really going on spiritually in your lives. And I want to tell you about God and then I want to tell you about the devil. And here he speaks about the nature of God. Look what he says in the second part of, of 5 to the end of 7. He says this. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Now here Peter has grounded 
this calling of humility before others and the humility that he is asking for before God in that verse that he quotes from Proverbs 3.34. You'll see this verse. It's in the center there. It's grounding what comes before and after it. And and there, Proverbs 3.34 says this, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. So that's Peter's reason for saying, be humble towards one another in verse 5. And and also for saying after that, humbling yourselves under the mighty hand of God in verse 6. So just let that sink in for a second. First, notice what he says, that God opposes the proud. Now, we, we know that one author has written here that Peter says this and quotes this here to Christians for this reason. He intends this verse to be as a celestial thunderbolt to make men and women humble. He, he wants to shock us about how important humility is before God in the sense that God is actually actively postured against pride. Now, I know that pride seems like one of those sins that we rarely identify or take seriously. But God consistently calls out pride in the Old Testament if you were just to read straight through. You'll you'll see everywhere that He sees it as kind of a big deal. At its heart, pride is seeing yourself as above a need for God or maybe even above God's reach. In other words, you're, you're elevating yourself to such a place that you're, you're like, man, I am beyond a need for the help of God. I've got this God. I'm sufficient in and of myself. Or that you're beyond His reach in the sense that maybe I've disobeyed God, but God can't get me. I've protected myself sufficiently. So you almost sense that you are insulated above God, way up above Him. I think we get this kind of image in Obadiah 1, 3-4. Uh, there God is speaking about the pride of Edom as they are trying to intimidate the people of God, Israel, threatening them. And God says this, He says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty, high-up dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Who can get me and bring me down? And though you soar like the eagle, God says, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Do you you see that image? Pride is this thought that you are high above God. This is worse than Babylon. Uh, You remember the Tower of Babel, where they tried to build a tower up to God. Well, here we have a people who think they have built a tower up above God so that God can't even get to them. And that's what pride does to the human heart. Don't miss this. God postures Himself against pride, against proud hearts in all of its manifestations. And not only that, we find in this verse, I believe that God in His kindness postures Himself against the pride of even His children. Now, grace be to God that His posture towards us is different, but God disciplines pride out of His children too. Hebrews 12.6 says the Lord disciplines the one that He loves. That includes the sin of pride. He will empty us of every misplaced confidence that makes us feel secure apart from God. Do you feel the weight of that this morning? That, that those things that we take comfort in that make us feel insulated against suffering and persecution and being put in uncomfortable spots apart 
from God. Those are issues of pride that make God actually opposed to us. That bring discipline upon us. He will empty it of us because it is His grace. Whether it's our strength physically, or the degrees that we hang on our walls, or the influence that we have because of the relationships that we've built, or the wisdom that we have, or the intelligence and our IQ, or the good works that we have done, or past successes, or our savings accounts. God's can, God can delete all of those things in a moment to remind us that He is God and He is alone. And that there is none above Him. Any good that we trust in that leads us to think that we are anything less than utterly dependent upon God will be stripped of us to humble us. And what grace it is! What grace it is when God strips us of those things that we place confidence in apart from Himself. It is the goodness of God that does that. He tells us in this very verse. Did you notice that he, right after he says that God opposes the proud, he says God also gives grace to the humble. He, he humbles the proud, His humble children, so that He can give them more of Himself. So if God strikes the proud with one hand, notice that He helps the humble with the other. Do you see that? He's striking the proud with one hand, but the other, He is lifting up the, the, the weak and the humble. See, God presses down the proud as He is exalting and lifting up the humble. He begins by saying, clothe yourselves in this verse. Notice before this verse, he says, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Now, here we see one of those 61 another's that we find in the New Testament that speaks about the way that the Christian community ought to treat one another, particularly in the context of the local church. Uh, Peter Ochtemeyer, speaking of this verse, says the apostles utilize this image of clothing, of putting on a garment as being appropriate for servile activity. It was a special garment for servile activity. It's, it's like the garment a slave tied over his normal clothes to perform lowly jobs. In other words, they're, they're not to show up at church in, in taxes spiritually or, or like emotionally or like in the way they think about themselves. Like they're showing up with garments that are ready to serve. He says every, every member should come not to exalt themselves, but really to stoop down and serve others in the way that Christ did. Now, here's what's fascinating. The apostle moves from communal humility to theological humility. Did you see that? He begins with how we should treat each other. But notice that our humility with one another depends on whether we truly believe and trust that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. See, Peter's clear about what a humble church or God's flock will do as suffering heats up. Are you ready? This is what humility looks like in real time according to Peter in verses 6-7. to Here's what he says. He says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. And here's how you do it. Casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. That, that's the particular way that we practice humility here. There are other ways that we need to be humble, but here in particular, it is this action of as suffering hits, we are casting our anxieties upon Him. See, humility means receiving or revering and trusting in and obeying God in His mighty hand. When suffering strikes, I think our tendency is, is to, to go God shopping looking for better options, Right? Like, God's, He doesn't seem to be able to help me now. Does it feel that way? 
And so maybe I need to look elsewhere for help that God isn't able to provide. I think God needs a spot. Well, that's pride. Not trusting God when you're suffering and not casting your anxieties on Him, that's pride according to this verse. It's not trusting the mighty hand of God. It's looking at the world and not believing that God is strong enough or wise enough to make good on His promise to exalt you on that last day when Jesus comes back. And humility means dependence on God. Now don't miss this. God gives grace to the humble who trust that they have confidence in His mighty, sovereign hand. And because of that, they cast their anxieties on Him because they know that He cares for them. That's the confidence with which they throw. See, God providentially cares for ravens and lilies. Jesus tells us that. And then Jesus asks, and how much more does He care for His children? That is the way that God is sovereignly working behind the scenes for His children. And that is the confidence with which we need to go before God and trust Him in all of our circumstances. That's our confident hope that drives our casting. See, God doesn't throw our anxieties into the burn pile. You know what I'm saying? You don't bring an anxiety to God and He says, not really important to me to be burned. It's not the way that God deals with His kids. No, when when His child comes to Him, just like if you have a, a child and your child comes to you and they come to you with concern, not when you're short-tempered, but when you see them crying and you care. You know that, that you're listening and you're engaged. You, you want to know what's going on. In the same way, God wants to, to know what's going on. He's not throwing our anxieties on the burn pile. Instead, He is giving grace to the humble. He is responding. He is giving grace to them. And that's why we keep casting is because He continues to promise that He has more grace to give. See, humility never loses sight of the mighty hand of God empowering us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Never lose sight of that. Never lose confidence in that. He continues to draw us back to that. And I think there is actually an important lesson about the relationship between humbling, casting, and pride here. And catch this? Humbling, pride, and casting actually are connected. Uh, Tom Schreiner brings this out in his commentary. He says this, the relationship between the main verb humble yourself and the participle Casting all your anxieties on Him is important because it shows that giving into worry is an example of pride. Did you catch that? Giving into worry? It, it, it's actually an example of pride. Now you might feel weak when you worry, but he says it's actually a problem with pride. See, pride carries cares around. It totes them around. Because it's not willing to give them over to God and trust Him. Humility casts cares upon God. Trusting that He is able. That He is infinitely wise. That He is good. That He is strong enough. That, that you might not understand where this is going or why this is happening. But that God does. And that God's doing something. That He's for you. That's the nature of what it looks like to be humble before God. So the choice of whether to carry or to cast comes really down to how you see God's hand. Is it a mighty hand in your life? Or is it a weak hand? The Bible says that God has a mighty hand. In fact, the Old Testament almost uses the mighty hand of God, I believe, as a technical description of the power of God delivering Israel, God's flock, His sheep, out of slavery and into the promised land as their great shepherd. 
Uh, You'll remember Psalm 136 records this event. And he says there, the psalmist says this, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a strong or mighty hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. You see it? It was a mighty hand that delivered Israel up and out of bondage and slavery to Egypt and placed them into the promised land as he struck down enemies of God. See, the humble heart recognizes that only God can truly exalt him or her in the ways that they long for. And only God can be trusted to exalt us to where we belong. You just think about that. All of the places that we try to soar in our proud hearts. What God says is not like you're coming too high, it's you're aiming too low. You're trying to exalt yourself. Let me exalt you. When the end comes, you are going to be blown away by what I have prepared for you. Things that you have not seen, that you cannot imagine, wait for it. But did you notice here that Peter promises that at the proper time, he may, he might exalt, he may exalt you. The proper time. Now this may doesn't mean he might or might not. God will exalt us. He will exalt all of his children. But don't miss this. The proper time tells us that God is never late. Anybody ever here felt like God was late? Anybody here feel like God's late like every day? We know that's experientially the feeling that we have, but theologically the truth is God is never late and His timing is always better than ours. So God's timing is always perfect. God's time is really our timing. God's timing is always better than our timing. And humility before God means that we wait on God's time Trusting in God's plan and casting our cares on God because our infinitely sovereign, wise, good God most certainly cares for us. So says the cross. And God always gets all of His sheep all of the way home even if one of the 99 strays and He has to chase after Him. And not only do Christians need to trust God, they need to third, watch out for the devil. They need to watch out for and resist the devil. Did you see that in verses 8 to 9? Be aware of God caring for you. Be aware of your need to watch out for and resist the devil. You'll notice in verse 8, again, he says this. He says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, this is the third time that Peter has encouraged Christians to be sober-minded. And the the idea is you need to be awake and alert because something important is happening. And here, he, before he's been talking about the return of Christ, but here he's talking about an enemy. And he says, knowing your enemy is important. I I think that you guys would probably like to know if this church had a pet lion that we let loose in the service, right? Just like to know that. Be aware of it. And here I think that what God wants us to know is, Peter's telling us, you need to know you have an enemy in the world that is loose, that is around, that is looking for you, that wants to eat you. Just thought you should know that. I think it's good pastoring to let you know you might be eaten by a lion. And if there's a lion loose, it's no time to sleep or get passive. Now, Peter spent this whole letter talking about God's powerful work amongst his suffering people. 
And their immediate sufferings have been in view. But here Peter offers a brief footnote on that cosmic meta-narrative that I spoke of. The, the, the big story of how God is actually at work in a grand cosmic war that He has already won in Christ, that He is sovereign over, but that is still at play where there are forces that are unseen that are actually affecting our daily lives. And their ultimate battle is spiritual. So just think about this. They've been thinking about all of the, the physical manifestations of their problems. Their co-workers, uh, the, the friends, the family that are, that are making fun of them or they're giving them a hard time. Uh, they're thinking about maybe political authorities that are uh, against them. And what he is saying here, I believe, is, is that there's actually something grander that you need to be aware of, that there's actual spiritual darkness that is against you. Now notice first that he says, watch out for the devil in verse 8. Watch out for the devil in verse 8. Or he says, be sober-minded and be watchful. See, Peter here turns his attention from God's empowering to the devil's devouring. Do you see that? Now, Satan, that's a word that means adversary, and devil means accuser, but he's the enemy of the sheep of God. Now, I remember when I first moved to Phoenix, I was meeting with a guy who was involved with this ministry his whole life, and um, he was telling me about this great story about he, how he had all of a sudden, he'd been a Christian his whole life, and he just started believing that the devil was an actual person. He's like, I thought it was just like, you know, a metaphor for stuff. But I think the Bible actually believes that there's like this, this thing that's like a, a devil. He said, yep. Basic Christianity. What were you leading again? I think that's kind of like necessary to know your enemy if you're going to be a spiritual leader, Right? And the, 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 the enemy that we have here, the great enemy that we were called to be aware of is Satan. Now, Peter's footnote here sounds a lot like Paul and how he ends Ephesians. If you remember that in Ephesians chapter 6. Do you remember? He goes through this grand uh, depiction of uh, the salvation of God in the first two chapters of Ephesians. And then he talks about the way that that ought to play out in relationships between various people. And then he ends in chapter 6 with this description of how we ought to put on the whole armor of God. And he says this in verses 11 to 12, that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now just take note of the space that Peter has given to God's purposes in suffering throughout Peter so far. Lots of verses that are committed to talking about God and His work in us and our confidence in what God is doing in all of our sufferings and how God never leaves us or forsakes us and how He is at work in us and He's giving all of these promises and then He comes to the end and He gives two notes on the devil. I don't know what that means, but I don't think He's too worried about the devil. But He says that we should be. He says that we should be worried about the devil. We need to be aware of the enemy. And here you'll notice that he speaks of this spiritual threat. It is the devil who is on the prowl. Look at this. Like a, a roaring lion looking for his next meal. He's hungry to destroy their faith and cause them to default on that end time reward that's coming with Christ. See, his bite and roar in this text are the persecutions and sufferings the devil is using to intimidate the flock of God. He's trying to intimidate them through sufferings and persecutions. And then 
He wants to send them running away from trusting in the chief shepherd. That's his goal. Don't trust Jesus. Don't cast your cares upon God. You need to look elsewhere. You need to scatter and run. See, Jesus cares for his sheep and Satan tries to crush them. Now this image of the devil prowling and seeking to to devour God's people might be more pregnant with meaning than we first realized. Uh, you, You might have read Psalm 22 where in Psalm 22 it speaks of another shepherd, David. The great king of Israel who himself felt intimidated by the danger that surrounded him in verses 12 to 13. And there he writes of his intimidated moment and he says this, Many bulls encompassed me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Now the bulls of Bashan, they were these famed brutish beasts known to be large, strong, aggressive, and intimidating. They were intimidating bulls. And David is here comparing his enemies, the people that are scaring him, to his uh, to these bulls. See, David envisions these intimidating bulls is actually also being like ravening, roaring lions looking to eat him. I think this is a fascinating image if you really think about it. David's killed like actual lions, right? We know he at least killed one when he was protecting his sheep. As a shepherd, an actual shepherd, he has killed a real lion. Uh, He's killed giants, right? So, got a guy that's killed lions and giants. And, and, you know, Saul killed his thousands and he killed his ten thousands. Like, David's not a weak guy. He's also like the great king of Israel. Like the greatest king they've ever known. The king after which every other king would be measured. That's King David. And King David is intimidated. That's scary stuff when the king's intimidated. Just think about that. Like when I go flying on a plane, uh, there are a lot of things that don't scare me. Like I'm used to getting on a plane and looking over and seeing a, a man or a woman kind of grip the chair for like dear life. I'm used to seeing people, uh, you know, taking pills that like put them to sleep or, you know, for anxiety or whatever. Like I'm, I'm used to that. Uh, I'm used to the squeals when we get a little bit of turbulence. Like people, oh, you know, that kind of thing. Doesn't like make me really nervous. I'm like, yeah, that, that happens. But if at any point in the trip I see the, the pilot run out of the cockpit looking for a parachute, I'm terrified, right? And if the king of kings, David, is scared, intimidated, like, I feel like we're in trouble. And that's exactly the kind of image that we get of King David here. He's terrified. And it's in that moment that in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-two, David says, he cries out, Save me from the mouth of the lion. You see that? Terrified of the lion. Of course, the very next psalm is another famous psalm, Psalm 23. You'll remember what it says there. Uh, David says that he's a shepherd who's looking to a greater shepherd. He says, the Lord is my shepherd, shall not want. Don't miss this. David was stronger than most, braver than most. But when his enemies growled and roared, David flinched. He was scared. David looked for a greater shepherd than himself. A shepherd who cared for him and did not flinch before the bulls of Bashan that opened their mouths and roared like lions. And Jesus is that greater shepherd that David looked for and to, who came after to defeat the spiritual line behind all of the physical lines that intimidated him. And when the, David, when the devil roars, Jesus never flinches. He's not nervous. He sits comfortably, confidently behind the power of the cross. And he declares that you've already been defeated. He's defamed the, the lion. 
Now, why doesn't Jesus flinch when Satan roars? Well, I, I think there are a number of reasons. Let me give you four quick that we find in the Bible. First, it's that Jesus is the greater lion from the tribe of Judah. He is God's lion. Revelation 5, 5 tells us that he is the greater lion with the greater roar. He is not intimidated by little lions. Uh, second, Jesus already has shown himself to be the shepherd greater than David who fe- defeated the lion-like Satan at the cross. Again, in Revelation 5, 5. He has conquered, is what Revelation says. That's not he will, it's he has. He has conquered. He has won. He is victorious. Third, Satan gave it his best shot at the cross when he tried to kill Jesus. And Satan is only permitted, and in that, we find that he was defeated and that Jesus lives and reigns above all earthly powers. Just read Colossians 1 about that. There is, there is no power that exists apart from God's gracious hand in Christ, holding it and sustaining it. And fourth, Satan is on a short leash. Uh, read Job 1 about that. It shows that Satan is only permitted to do what God allows. He is not sovereign next to God or equal to God. It's not like yin and yang. It's not like they're like duking it out like Jesus is victorious. The end. Now catch this. The threat of being devoured is real, but Jesus tells us in John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You catch that? The threat of being devoured is real. Jesus promises that those are in my hand. I will never let go. So what does that mean? Does that mean that some will be devoured and taken away from the faith that are truly Christians? I don't don't think so at all. I think what's clear here is is that uh, everyone uh, who is truly in Christ, none will take them or snatch them out of the hand of Jesus. Jesus doesn't lose His sheep. And that's really good news. True sheep resist the devil with the grace that God provides. That's one of the evidences that you're a true sheep. It's that you persevere because God has preserved you. Uh, Just notice what he says in verse 9 about how sheep ought to respond who are truly his sheep. He says they resist the devil. So Peter says this in verse 9. He says this. He says, resist him, the devil, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, resistance carries this notion of an active stand in opposition. There's no such thing as as passive resistance when it comes to spirituality. Now, why is that? It's because uniting with Christ means that we actually become a target of the lion-like devil. Like, he, he hates Jesus, and he hates the children of the King. Now, think about it. Peter says the same kind of sufferings that they are experiencing in these Turkish churches are being experienced by the the brotherhood throughout the world. Now, I think this means at least a few things for us. For one, he's saying that suffering is normal for Christians because Satan has postured himself against God's flock. Do you see that? He's, He's postured himself against the shepherd and his sheep. Second, the reality of the suffering confirms they are God's sheep. So the, the, the suffering for some might begin to make them question whether or not God loves them. And Peter says, no. No, this is, this is confirming that you are loved by God. That's why Satan's so against you. He hates it. Third, the reality of Christians remaining faithful amidst suffering throughout the world confirms the chief shepherd's care for his sheep against every one of Satan's attacks and intimidations. You know, we, we every week pray for distant lands and other countries 
in other places where churches are. And as we do that, you might like ask, why are we doing that? Well, it's, it's a beautiful narrative that God is developing where there are churches and places that hate Christianity, where it's illegal to worship, where churches are growing and multiplying as an evidence of the power of the chief shepherd. The chief shepherd calls his sheep and they come running. And he is the one, by his very own power, that is protecting and maintaining and caring for them in ways that we never could with no matter how many resources we had. Jesus is the one who is caring for those, those churches. And that is why we are praying for them. See, some have their very lives. Some lose their very lives. But they have not lost their souls, trusting that God will exalt the humble even from death. In other words, devouring doesn't, that we will not be devoured does not mean that we won't die, but it does mean that our souls will not be taken from us, that they are God's, they are with Christ on high. So if you aren't firm in the faith, you are limp, and that comes from not knowing and trusting God's Word. It's ultimately a confidence, not just in your knowledge of Scripture, but a confidence in the relationship that you have with the point of Scripture, Jesus Christ Himself. By faith, we cling to Christ and all the tighter as Satan roars. See, mature Christians, hear this, mature Christians don't have bloody knuckles from duking it out with Satan. That's not what a mature Christian looks like. You know what a mature Christian looks like? If you look at the knuckles, they have white knuckles. You know why they're white? They're white from grasping on to Jesus more tightly. Like when they get scared, they don't think, well, I can get myself out of this. They think, I need you, Jesus. Like that's the, the call of the person who is a sheep who knows who the shepherd is. Mature Christians are less confident in themselves and more confident in Christ. And the only way to fight the devil is with your back to him, right? Like not normal fighting. So if you get picked on at school, this is not advice on fighting at school, right? Let your parents talk you through that. You do want to face them, I think at least, if you're fighting, right? That's not the image that we get in the Bible though. The image that we get in the Bible in James 4, 7-8 is resist the devil Run from him and he will flee from you. Right? You run from him and you draw near to God as God draws near to you. You might want, well, how is it safe to run from Satan? Like, why does he get intimidated? It's because he sees who you're running to. And when Satan sees you running to God, he's terrified of God. Just think about it. The devil is pictured as a restless enemy constantly on the prowl against the children of God. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you're an enemy of Satan? And he seeks to intimidate you by running to cause you to run away from Jesus. So how do you resist? How are you resisting fighting Satan actively today? Is it active? Is it in the morning when you wake up? Do you understand that the devil's on the prowl? Do you sense that? Do you sense the grace of God and the devil's on the prowl? Like I think those are things that Peter would say you need to at least be aware of. Maybe more of the grace of God, but, but not unaware of the devil. Well, in Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks tells the story of how Peter thought he could do this himself, fight the devil by himself, when he told Jesus in Matthew 26, 35, though all men deny you, I will not. You remember that? Like famous last words. Everybody denies you, Peter says, I will not. Same author of this book. And yet, what does he go on to do? Deny Jesus three times. See, it wasn't something that he could do in and of himself. It was something that he needed the power of God working in him to do. And then he did. He, told, he denied Jesus three times. And Brooks goes on to say this. He says, Do not engage Satan in your own strength, but be every day drawing new virtue and strength from the Lord Jesus. So how do you do that according to 1 Peter 5? I think it means that we need to be 
humble. It means that we need to be humble and, and bow ourselves, prostrate ourselves before the holy, righteous, sovereign God who is in control of all things. I think it means that we need to be daily about the business of communing with God in, in His Word and prayer. Or, or are we communing with Him? Are we sensing the, the power afresh of God in our lives? Are we growing in that? We need to be watchful for the enemy and all of his devices. We need to be aware of our own hearts and our sin tendencies and the ways that we tend to wander from God in our hearts. We need to know what we believe and why we believe it if we want to be firm. We need to understand our faith. We need a community or a local church that is the pillar and buttress of truth to help us remain close to Jesus. And we need to cast our cares on God every day, trusting that He cares for us. But there's a fourth thing that we see finally here, and that's this in verses 10 to 11, that momentary sufferings will give way to eternal glory. This is good. Momentary sufferings will give way to eternal glory. Here's what he says in verses 10 to 11. He says this, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself Restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's good stuff, isn't it? See, humility and suffering are not the end goal for the people of God. We're not supposed to suffer and be humble just for suffering and humility's sake. No, the the end for the people of God is God's glory. Glory is what awaits us. See, sufferings don't feel small in real time, right? Anybody here think like sufferings feel small in real time? I always feel like they're like bigger than they probably actually are, right? I mean, they always look like closer, bigger, further away, smaller. In the moment, it always feels huge. But Peter reminds us that they are momentary and brief. Now, in what sense are they momentary and brief when they feel so long and long. Well, it's in comparison to the eternity that awaits. Have you thought about that? The eternity that awaits us in Christ? Have you gotten bored with thinking about that because it's like so far out of the categories that you have? Peter says, let me remind you of the word eternity. And then let me just ask you to begin to imagine the, you know, how in- infinite that is and then compare this momentary suffering to that, and it's so forgettable when you consider the eternity that awaits you. In light of eternity, when you're there, so many things that seem so big right now will seem so small. You might not even be able to see them anymore. Difficult marriages, chronic illnesses, that public harassment, the the loss of a job, a job that you loved, even the loss of life will seem short, and small, like a little while in comparison to the glorious eternal future that awaits us. See, the same God who brings about humility in His children, carrying, carrying them Himself through their sufferings, will also one day not only carry us, but exalt us on the last day. And the God of all grace describes the nature of God as the source of every good. But here, notice that He isolates a particular manifestation of the grace of God who is a God of all grace. Did you see that? He's focusing in here on what that is. And he says, it's this aspect of His grace that I want to point out. He is the one who has called you to His eternal 
glory in Christ. Now the Bible uses calling in different ways. It's not always used in the same way. But it's interesting that Peter seems to use it consistently. This calling, he uses it in 1.5, in 1.5, in 2.9, in 2.21, and in 3.9. You can look those up later. And he uses it here, in every case it seems, to speak of God's effective work of bringing believers into saving relationship with Himself. In other words, it's not just a general call that he sometimes speaks of in the Bible. Here he's talking about this effective, powerful call that actually brings dead people who are spiritually dead to spiritual life. I think that's what's going on here. See, this verse serves as an explanation and a promise to those who are truly called. The explanation is for how anyone makes it to the end, and that is that it is God's work in them. God has done it. It's an inside job. God is at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. In fact, the the four words that are used here to describe what God will do simply confirm that God will keep His promise to get His sheep all the way home. See, the promise is that for those who faithfully suffer, the future is incredibly bright. And the glory of the future will dwarf any past suffering. Any past suffering. And one day Jesus will return Himself to completely remove the afflictions which weigh us down. And He won't even have to flex to do it. In exchange, He is going to lay on us an immeasurable weight of glory that will make all of those afflictions seem so light. And it's hard for us to imagine how God could undo the afflictions that weigh us down today. But on the last day, we will be shocked by how light they seem. How light hard marriages, chronic illnesses, Tragic deaths, unrelenting loneliness, vocational failures, persecutions for faith, and the list goes on. They will all seem so light in comparison to the fullness of God's glory when it arrives. Now, I'm not sure this is meant to make our present suffering seem small as much as it is to help our imaginations really run wild with how magnificent the coming weight of glory must truly be, right? So in other words, the greater the suffering that you sense that you feel there's no way that God could undo this, the greater the weight of glory must be to actually make this seem small. Do you see that? And that's great math. And that's when God's eternal dominion will be experienced in full, when His glory will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. What a day that's going to be. Let's pray.